Compassion is kind of a funny thing. It seemed to be in short supply these days, especially weekends like this one. I don't need to tell you what's going on in the news. These are tense days and days in which compassion seems to be very much like a thing that we're thinking about. And faced with the parable of the Good Samaritan, of all things, like Christianity's go-to story about the ethical implications of showing mercy and compassion on our enemies, on this morning of all mornings, with everything going on, I'm, I'm experiencing, to be perfectly honest, this, this kind of uh, urge to preach a, like, stick it to them kind of sermon. I mean, whoever they might be, right? The, the compassionless ones, the cruel and inhumane ones who espouse Christian doctrine on a Sunday morning and go and, you know, do nefarious things on Monday. As Moses said several thousand years ago to the people of Israel, this commandment is not too hard for you, right? This stuff is not rocket science. The commandment to love God with your whole being while loving your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes we call that the, the summary of the law. Both Jesus and the lawyer agree this is a cohesive summary of Jewish doctrine and practice. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The principle of love of God and love of neighbor are not restricted to Christianity and to Judaism. These stem from ancient ethical imperatives to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. As an Episcopal bishop, Stephen Charleston, wrote this week, providing shelter and nourishment always comes first. Then the decision to stay or go becomes clear once there's time to talk. But even the tension of being different from one another, being unsure, needing time to process a relationship, even in that context, hospitality, at least anciently, was always the priority. Basic human kindness outweighed fear. The law is one thing. Giving a cup of water to somebody in need is another. This stuff is not hard. It's not that complicated. But we make it complicated, right? I mean, those of us, and I count myself in this, in this category, right? Those of us who maybe identify with the lawyer in this morning's story, the one who knows the text, the one who loves the text, the one who wrestles with the text, right? Wrestles it until it blesses him. That's the ancient Jewish pr principle of interpretation. The lawyer has all the right answers, right? Love God with your whole being. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is how you fulfill the law. And, and Jesus commends him for it, right? Do this and you will live, he says. But the follow-up question that this lawyer asks, he's not content with the easy answer, right? He has this harder question. And it's a it's a profoundly contemporary question. We might even call it a political question. Who is my neighbor? In some ways, this is a question about like compassion fatigue, right? To whom am I obligated? That's the real question the lawyer is asking Jesus, right? What is the nature of this obligation the law lays on me? What does it mean to love my neighbor? Does that mean I, I try to cultivate good feelings towards them? Do I, you know, take pity on them, maybe advocate on their behalf? Do I have to, like, actively work for the alleviation of my neighbor's suffering? And, and if so, what's the best way to do that? Do I let the government do that? Do I give money to nonprofits? Do I sign up for a shift at the food pantry or the soup kitchen? Do I start carrying Sisters of the Road coupons on me so that when somebody on the street asks me for money, I don't have to feel so guilty about saying, sorry, not today. I mean, am I, am I obligated to help everybody? Like every hungry person I see, every injured person I pass on a street corner, a highway ramp, how far is my liberal guilt supposed to take me? I mean, I've got a lot of it, but it's not inexhaustible. And some days it feels like I'm kind of running on empty. At some points I'm tempted to say like, okay, enough. There's nothing I can do about kids in cages at our border. I can't stop an ICE raid. I can think global, I can act local, but I, I can't give to every cause. I can't sign every petition. I can't call my senator on every single issue. My stingy compassion, my progressive need to virtue signal, they only get me so far. The Good Samaritan only had to deal with one bleeding guy. 
I mean, what happens when the, when the road to Jericho is so choked with the bleeding and maimed that you can't move down the road? Like, when do these people stop being my neighbor and start becoming somebody else's problem? I mean, I'm pretty sure that the priest and the Levite in Jesus' story, right, these guys who pass on the other side of the road when they see the injured one, I'm pretty sure that both of them have come off a really long shift at the Jerusalem homeless shelter. <laughs> right? Maybe the Levite spent... All, all, all morning knocking on doors raising money for Levites against gun violence, right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to read my assumptions into the text. That's kind of a biblical no-no. I am 90% sure that this priest is on his way to, to officiate at somebody's funeral, right? They have, got, they have every good reason not to stop. So do we. So do I. When Christians have read the story of the Good Samaritan, we have tended to see ourselves, at least anticipatorily, in the, in the person of the Samaritan, the one who shows mercy to a hurting man regardless of this gulf that separates them. We name hospitals after this guy. We give money to nonprofits founded in his name. Being a Good Samaritan, right, that's become our cultural shorthand for showing random acts of kindness. He's the, the patron saint of Christian do-gooders, the outsider that we, you know, we aspire to emulate. But the parable of the Good Samaritan, as Jesus tells it, is not told to other Samaritans. It's told to a lawyer, a scholar, a righteous one, who really wants to know, how far am I obligated to go? What are the limits on this thing, this compassion dictum, the love commandment? And what happens when I get tired and I can't do it as well as I think I ought to? I mean, the bad news this morning is that Jesus does not have a lot of patience for compassion fatigue. The story that he tells to this lawyer kind of neatly skirts this question of boundaries and asks the lawyer to identify not with the one who's providing care, but with the one who's receiving it. I mean, if you want a, a take-home bumper sticker version of this parable, it's not, be a good Samaritan, see how many people you can help today. It's something more like, you know, your enemy is actually coming down the road behind you, your enemy has tools for your healing. See if you can let your enemy heal you. The Samaritan is moved to act, the text says, because he is moved with pity. That's how our text renders it. That's an anemic translation of what is actually a powerful Greek word. It's splachna, and it means exactly what it sounds like. The Samaritan is not moved with pity. A little translation of this would be, his bowels are twisted with compassion. This is a gut wrench. This is an intestinal issue, if you like. It's, an issue, it's a sense of empathy that is a bodily response, much more than an intellectual conviction to intervene and help. That, that's actually what Moses, I think, is getting at at Deuteronomy, right? This stuff is not hard. It is hardwired. This is biological. I mean, Moses thinks, Jesus thinks, if your body is working the way it's meant to work, you shouldn't have to think your way into compassion. Not if you're loving God with your whole being, with everything you've got, heart, mind, soul, body, strength. If your body belongs to the one who made it, if you've turned it back over to the Creator and surrendered yourself to the one who has made all bodies, you don't really have a choice in this matter. I mean, one way of understanding what resurrection means is that my body, my resurrected, baptized body, actually belongs to God now. It's not mine anymore. And that means that my guts belong to God, and that God is going to twist those guts into knots in order to move me to action. That's how this works. There's no such thing as liberal guilt in God's economy. God does not have much use for, like, guilt or shame-based actions of mercy. God is interested, it seems to me, in reclaiming my schlockna 
so abused by the world, so deadened and dulled by fatigue, hardened and steeled against mercy, God is interested in reclaiming my guts so that they are able to do the thing that the Samaritan got, Samaritan's guts do for him in this story. They move him to action. Not once he's thought it through, not once he's weighed the outcomes and crafted an eight-part plan for crisis intervention. He just acts because his splachna is in good working order. Because at a biological level, this guy is, he realizes he's not different from the man by the side of the road. That biological connection to another human being that takes the Samaritan to this, to this place beyond tribe, beyond religion, beyond ethnicity or belief, that place where there is no such thing as friends and enemies. There's no insiders and outsiders, no Democrats and Republicans. There's just fellow human beings who are suffering and a God with inexhaustible resources for care and healing. That's what it means to love God with your whole being, heart, mind, soul, body, strength. That's Jewish circumlocution, right? That means you love God with everything you got because God will take it all. And it starts in your splachna, starts in your gut. Once God gets your gut, there's no going back, right? God's got you then. So the question is not really, who is my neighbor? I mean, everybody's my neighbor, right? The real question, according to this story, is who is my enemy? Who is the one coming down the road behind me? The one with the keys to my healing and my salvation? The one who can show me what it really looks like to act as a neighbor? I don't know who it is for you. I don't know who your enemy is. I suspect that it's somebody that is more intimate with you than you realize. For me, the enemy coming down the road, I think, at least in this story, it's actually not some politician to whom I'm opposed. It's actually not a fellow human being who has done me any kind of wrong. In this story, I think my enemy is Jesus. I think he's the one who's like got it out for me, a love that will not let me go, right? Jesus is the one who's demanding more, coaxing me out of safety into places of risk that make me profoundly uncomfortable, that challenge my tidy notions of decency and decorum, radically unsettle my prejudices and push against my fears, I would like to be left alone, right? I mean, thank you very much. I would like God on my terms, right? When I sit down to pray in a gentle, beautiful moment of silence, just enough God to get me through a time of peaceful meditation, and then I get up from my cushion, and I'm ready to go about my day on my terms. And that's when my enemy shows up, because the world does not wait for me to be ready. I mean, I don't know about you. For me, the signal flare that I have learned to watch for, the sign of this approaching enemy of love and compassion, is when I start feeling like this gnawing sense of irritation, right? Like when I start having imaginary arguments with imaginary people in my car, like defending this or arguing against that, that's when I know, oh, hello. <laughs> my enemy is approaching. I'm getting very snarky and I'm getting very irritated. But there he is, right? Like just kind of in the rearview mirror watching me get consumed with this anger, this weird kind of irritated anger, watching me try to make my way down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, limping all the while, pretending that this gaping wound in my soul is not this stinkering, festering thing for all to see. My enemy sees exactly how deeply I am suffering. And my enemy is full of an inexhaustible compassion. And when I stop and rest for a minute, he like slides in there next to me, takes the oil and the wine out of his bag, which, I mean, let's just be clear, pouring wine on somebody's wound strikes me as a very strange idea. Until I think about the way that I'm invited to this table every week, and wine is poured on my wounds, 
at this altar rail. Oil is poured on my head, the oil of healing, the oil of welcome. Bread is placed in my palm. I am invited home. I'm sustained. I'm restored to wholeness and health. But that's not where it stops, right? We, we sometimes pray at communion, deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal. The point of all of this stuff, the bread and the oil and the wine, the, the tools that my enemy uses to heal me, the point of this stuff is not just that I experience healing for myself. The point of the healing is that it gets into my gut, that it grabs my splachna again, that place where compassion and mercy can be restored to me, the place where they can be resurrected in a body that is deadened to the suffering of the world. That's the mercy seat. That's the gut wrench. That's the place from which my enemy restores me to health which is actually when I start behaving like a neighbor, when I start looking beyond the world of friends and enemies and into this beautiful world of people, people with needs, people who need healing themselves, merciful people, wounded people, angry people, beautiful people who stop at nothing to mend a broken heart, to heal a sin-sick soul, to pour wine and oil over the nastiest of wounds in the name of the great healer, the, the true Samaritan, the one who will not let me go, who will not let go of my gut until everybody finds their way into the inn of healing and until every mangled one is brought safely home.